Yeah. I. What's what? It is uh, 9.30. We're going to get started here if everyone wants to make their way to a seat. Uh, today, I had mentioned that we were going to try to cover chapters 4 and 5, but as I went through it, that was a little too much to bite off for one lesson. So we're going to just do chapter 4 today. Um, we're going to focus on Adam or Christ. Adam or Christ. That's the theme of this chapter. So let me pray for us, and then um, I'm going to have you flip somewhere in your Bibles, and we're going to read a passage together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come together. God, thank you for um, blessing us the way that you do with your word. I pray that we would be open. Our hearts would be submissive to it. God, that we would be taught well by it. Uh, Lord, that you would um, guide my words, Lord, as I speak. Allow them to be clear. Allow them to be accurate. God, allow them to be worthwhile of the name of Christ. Uh, Lord, thank you for just the opportunity again to come together as a body of believers, uh, currently without fear of persecution. Lord, and I pray that we would, um, we would stand on your word and on what it teaches us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, flipping your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Or tap, whichever one is more convenient for you. Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> okay, verse 12. We're going to read verse 12 through verse 21. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men. Because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is the type of him, that being Christ, who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man... If by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one much more those who receive the abundance of grace of the gift of the righteous will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one man's offense, judgment came to all men, 
as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. You can tell this is smaller print. I'm having a little bit of trouble keeping up with it. Resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many, that is all, were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, that is by faith, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, who are the two main people in this passage of Scripture that we're talking about? Who are the two main people? Adam. And then who else? Jesus Christ. Okay, these two people are the representatives of the entire human race. Okay, we fall into one camp or the other camp. This is going to be important for us to remember as we go through this, okay? This is what he starts to hit on in chapter 4. He actually asked that question under the subtitle of chapter 4. Adam or Christ? In Adam, we are under a covenant of works. We are condemned. The moral law is a stench to us. It condemns us before God. It seals in unbelief, okay? It seals in unbelief our damnation. God takes it that seriously, okay? But in Christ, who is the second Adam, who fulfilled what Adam failed to fulfill, that is the covenant of works in perfection, to those who believe in him upon his death, burial, and resurrection, we are in a covenant of grace. And that covenant of grace is sustained in heaven. It is undefiled, incorruptible, cannot be changed, and no one can destroy it. God saves those who have faith in Jesus Christ, undeniably and completely, okay? So this is the foundation for this whole uh, chapter, okay? So I want us to turn in our books to uh, page 43. And you can see uh, it, the title of the chapter, uh, chapter 4, is The Collective Question. Does our vision of social justice take any group identity more seriously than our identities in Adam or in Christ. Okay? Now, he actually quotes several pieces of Scripture that are in Romans and that actually lead up to that pinnacle statement there in Romans 5. So we need to understand that Jesus is the second Adam who fulfilled the covenant of works on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 15 also talks about that, okay? We are in Adam or we are in Christ. Okay, so with that said, we're going to start here in pay, on page 43. So on page 43, um, I'm going to start with um, the way that this is framed and how I feel like it can lead us into a place where we don't necessarily want to be, but how he corrects it later. So I want us to recognize some language that would align itself with the typical way that proponents of social justice B would describe the human condition. 
Okay, he later qualifies it on pages 44 and 43, but I want us to notice some language here that I feel like if you hear it from other people, it can be construed in a much different way than I think that he is possibly trying to do it here. Okay, so first sentence, or last sentence in this first paragraph says, I think, it's talking about two people here. One's name is Christian, the other's name is Connor. One is a far-right skinhead, one is a far-left, basically Antifa member. And he's trying to show that all of us, he's going to eventually try to show that all of us have one major identity that we are associated with, okay, Adam or Christ. But here we start, we, we see this. He says, this is one of the people. He says, I think ultimately, quote, that people become extremists not necessarily because of ideology, Piccolini observes. They're searching for three very fundamental human needs. So why do people become extremists? Because of human needs. We need to take a little bit of time to think about what that means. Identity, community, and a sense of purpose. There's a subtle shift there, okay, in the way that that is framed. Page 44, he says something similar. It's the first paragraph there, the last sentence in that first paragraph. Both now work, in speaking of Christian and Connor, both now work to set others free from, some, uh, from such self-righteous communities. Yet Christian and Connor were propelled by the same human drive, the need to belong. Well, that's not necessarily what Jeremiah 17 teaches, and that's not what James chapter 1 teaches primarily. And he will get on to say this, but the way that social justice people use this type of language, which is what I want you guys to think about, is that they take statements like this and they make sin palatable. They diminish it to circumstances, okay? They diminish it to how you grew up. Look at the, uh, what's the example of that? Well, just look at the way that the mainstream media, at least the majority of it, handled the riots after George, Floyd, uh, George Floyd's death. What did they say? Were those things actually wrong because they were sinful, or were they a product of the environment that the people who were perpetrating those things grew up in? Okay? And this language here is used by them in that way. We cannot make sinful action a psychosocial construct. It is a problem of the human heart, and it is only and foremost first rebellion against a holy God, period. Then we can start to talk about those other things. Sin comes, according to James, not when men are tempted by God, of course, but, why, but by what? When we are carried away by our own lusts. When we are carried away by our own lusts. So as we read this, I, I'm, again, I'm not trying to impugn his motives in writing that, but I do think as I've listened to many people speak on this subject, and as I've read several books on this subject, the way that those two sentences are framed could easily be used by a social justice B proponent, someone who thinks that it's a good and right way of thinking to frame things and to frame sin in terms of a psychosocial construct. And what I mean by that is a psychological problem and a social problem. I grew up with abusive people around me. I grew up poor. Now, do not get me wrong. Can those things inflame sin? Yes, they can. But are they the root of the problem. No, the roots of the problem are the deceitfulness of the human heart, okay? 
So we have to, we have to do that first, okay? We have to recognize that. So we want to be sure and clear about how we frame things. We want to be sure and clear about how we frame things. People will take our words and will uh, twist them. As a matter of fact, if you want to go back to an appendix that I nearly included today, but I just did, that we're just not going to have time, the appendix on black and white, he talks about the redefinition of words. It's very good. Okay? It points out some of the things that he talks about here, the appendix in the back. Any questions so far? Okay, so the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to move down the page on page 44. Strange camaraderie. I hope you noticed that he didn't spell camaraderie here, but he spelled camaraderie as in communist socialist. Okay, um, I, it took me a minute to notice that initially when I typed it in, and then I was like, oh, hold on, that's what he did. He's doing a play on words here. So he's going to talk about a little bit about Karl Marx, and what I want to do um, in order for us to really get what he's trying to say here, I think we have to do a little bit of historical talking points, okay? So I want to kind of teach you or help you think about what Marxism is, okay? You, we hear this term thrown around a lot on uh, media. We hear this term uh, taught in schools. We hear this term, uh, we have people for it, and then we have people against it. So what is it? Okay, so... Look, at, look down with me on page, um, on page 44. It's about halfway down the second paragraph there. It says, Social Justice B seeks to meet these needs by dividing humans into two groups, the oppressed and the oppressors. Your skin tone, your gender, your economic, or your social status may grant you a warm welcome into various groups, which will take you seriously, pat you on the back, and hand you a drink. So the first sentence there, social justice B seeks to meet these needs by dividing humans into two, a group, into two groups, the oppressed and the oppressors. That's true. It's a very accurate and succinct statement that he makes there. Okay, that's true. So what is Marxism? Somebody take a stab at, uh, at trying to define that. What is Marxism? What did Karl Marx believe? That there is what? No class. No class. Kind of. What else? Somebody else take a stab at it. That could be one thing. The bourgeoisie and what else? Proletariat. Proletariat. It was a P word. That was close. All right. So who are the bourgeoisie and proletariat? Does anybody remember? He actually would divide us into two classes, okay? Two classes. So fancy words, right? And I want you to get this because this is where this stems from. You, you, if you understand this, then you can, all of those, all of the media that you're going to be bombarded with, the books that you're going to be bombarded with, whether in Christ's name or outside of Christ's name, because there are Marxist books written in Christ's name, okay? You're going to be able to filter it because you need to get this down. The bourgeoisie are the oppressors and the proletariat are the oppressed. Well, how did Marx define those things? Marx defined those things by bare materialism. By bare materialism. What do I mean by that? He divided class, those two classes by those who have 
what he called capital, and those who do not have capital, and which are called the workers. So even people in the political spheres who you continuously hear people, uh, uh, you hear them refer to employees as workers, that's because they are ingraining socialist and Marxist words on purpose. AOC being one of them. She constantly uses that word, and it's on purpose. She's a self-proclaimed socialist, okay? So what do you need to take away from this? Well, how does this get down to from where we see those who have capital and those who do not have capital? So what are we seeing in this country where we see that? Private property is being attacked. Private property is being attacked. If you, if you are a person who possesses private property, you are part of the bourgeoisie and part of the oppressive class. We've seen this played out by our government on the moratorium on rent during the pandemic, where they took the ability of those who owned property to collect rent for the properties that they literally owned. Therefore, people could live there rent-free. Okay, That's stealing. That's breaking the Eighth Commandment. That is not their person not their position to do. So how does Marxism in and of itself with bare capitalism? Well, it breaks the Eighth Commandment, at least that. It also promotes covetousness, the Tenth Commandment. It also bears false witness against your neighbor, saying that they are automatically an oppressor if God has blessed them. Okay? At least those things. At least those things. Okay? It is a false religious concept that comes to its full fruition in a man named Antonin Gramsci. And then it gets further, further developed from him. He's the next cog in the wheel. Antonin Gramsci was an Italian socialist who developed the idea that's called cultural hegemony. He was astonished at the fact, I want you to follow me in this. I'll, I'll define those words for you because I know they're big words. I just, you'll hear these things and I want you to have some perspective on them, okay? He defined these things. How did he define it? He said that he, uh, after the uh, fall of communist Russia and after the fall of, of those things, he wondered how it was that capitalism survived. Because remember, in a Marxist paradigm, capitalism is evil. It's evil. Okay? In a Marxist paradigm, capitalism is evil. So he started asking himself, well, he moved it from bare materialism... Okay, those who have property, those who don't have property, those who have capital, those who don't have capital but are workers. He moved it down an, uh, or up another level to the ideological level and where he said that those things which, um, which keep the cultural norms going are called, um, let me think of how, a best way to say it so that it's understandable. He said that the ideas within culture that have the dominant force are actually the oppressive ideas. So the cultural ideas that perpetuate capitalism, that perpetuate, okay, um, whatever it might be, one group being more well-off than another group, those are the things that cause the oppressed to be oppressed by the oppressors. So he moved it from a bare materialistic thing, okay, to an ideological thing. So this, play, this is going to, I'm going to connect this right now, here in just a second, to what we see today. Because, let me just read this, uh, let me just read this quote here. So this is from Britannica.com about cultural hegemony. 
Gramsci's analysis of bourgeois hegemony, hegemony means the main idea, okay? So uh, you might say that heterosexuality is hegemony, okay? You might say that uh, in West Virginia, because we are 97% white, that uh, that skin color is hegemony, okay? That's, that's just a definition of what it means. He says, Gramsci's analysis of bourgeois hegemony was grounded in detailed historical analysis, but it also carried clear implications for the revolutionary socialist strategy. Listen to this. The acquisition of consent before gaining power is an obvious implication. Do we want consent or do we not? And here, Gramsci offered a distinction between two strategies. A war of maneuver, in essence, the full frontal assault on the bourgeois state. Think Russian Revolution. Okay, that's what happened there. And the war of position, engagement with and subversion of the mechanisms of the bourgeois ideological domination. Okay, where do we see that? Schools, number one. How did it happen? Frankfurt School. So there were people who studied under Gramsci, okay, and they're Germans, who, um, who promoted this idea of cultural hegemony that, remember, we're not defining people in terms of biblical view of man. We're defining people in terms of those who have and those who have not. So by implication, if there is any inequality in society, it can only be because those who have not are oppressed by those who have. It, we can't define it any other way. Okay, we can't define it any other way. So schools, the Frankfurt School. After World War II, the Ger some of those Germans fled, okay, fled Nazi Germany, and they came over to the higher education institutions in the Northeast. What did they start? They started a school, a sociological school, that perpetuated these ideas. How do we see that played out today? John Dewey, one of the main founders of our, of our educational system in America, literally said that he constructed our educational system that we have today for the very purpose of removing God from the children. Now, I ask you, in a few generations, has that happened? Okay? This is the questions that we have to ask. Ideas have consequences. They have consequences. This is why I said last week that sending your kid to a public school in particular circumstances is sinful. You are giving your children over to these ideologies. This is the purpose of them. It's exactly what's happened. It's everywhere today. This is how we end up here. So postmodernism. Postmodernism, because I'm going to get to the place where I define critical theory. Postmodernism in Western philosophy, because ha what we have is we have this convergence of this idea of cultural hegemony and postmodernism together, and that has produced where we are at right now. Okay? That has helped produce where we're at right now. Britannica.com, they're very helpful for definitions on these things. In Western philosophy, a late 20th century movement characterized by broad skepticism, subjectivism, or relativism, and a general suspicion of reason, and an acute sensitivity to the role of ideology in asserting and maintaining political and economic power. You hear that? So that's what, when we say, 
When we say oppressed versus oppressor, or oppressor oppressing the oppressed, remember, we're not defining it. This is what I want you to get out of all this with all that background. We're not defining it in terms of sin. We're not defining it by God's law. We are only defining it by those who have less than the other person. By definition, it, it cannot do anything except promote covetousness and envy. Okay? It can't do anything but that. So when he mentions, I, I, you need that background. I'm not making any of these things up. You all, if you have the time, can totally study this for yourself. These things are super important as we deal with this. Therefore, we cannot give any ground to the godless ideology that is Marxism, whether it be bare materialism of Marxism or critical theory played out in race, in the sexes, or in any other way. To give in an inch to this is to submit to another god. Period. It is not anything except idol worship. Okay? It is not anything except idol worship. And I appreciate the fact that he points to that in this chapter the rest of the way. That is, that is, what, that is the background to oppressor versus oppressed. That is the background to oppressor versus oppressed. Okay? Yes? Okay. Anything that um, we don't... So the question was, just so people can hear, how do you jump from oppressor and oppressed to idol worship? So what are we worshiping whenever we see ourselves in only an oppressed group? Ourselves. It's a Romans 1 thing. What did God give people over to? He gave them over to a depraved mind because why? Because they worship creation and the created things, which are us, and beasts, and so on and so forth. So, by definition, as breaking um, the, uh, the Eighth Commandment and the Ninth Commandment and the Tenth Commandment in that way, that, those things are idol worship. That's kind of what he actually hit on in the first part of this book. Okay? All right, so he goes on at the last paragraph here. The Bible's answer, which is where he starts to make this transition, which I greatly appreciate, and he's correct in this. The Bible's answer to need for belonging, to the need for belonging, is far more inclusive. Biblically, there is such a thing as being damned by belonging to a people group. So the oppressed would see the oppressors as damned. This is why we have so much schism in our country right now, Okay. We have fundamentally different presuppositions about the world. It cannot be reconciled outside of Christ. Okay? We see this. What, what do we say? We see people being damned by belong to a people group, namely the group called people. This damnation has nothing to do with our gender, our income, our national origin, or the melanin in our skin cells. It has to do, on the deepest level, with being a human being. According to Paul, every person on planet earth, rich or poor, male or female, black or white, religious or secular, right or left, stands united in this scandalous group identity. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen. Amen. We are either in Adam 
or we are in Christ. Okay, we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. What I want you to see, though, is Marxism makes a similar claim. Okay, you notice how there are two classes, right? We have a savior class, the people who are oppressed, right? They're going to rise up. They're going to look to the government for, as their savior in that way. And then they're going to be saved from the, from the oppressors. Christ saves us from the weight of sin, not necessarily from our economic depression, not necessarily from our bad circumstances, not necessarily from those things that inhibit us in this world. Okay? Not necessarily from those things. The Bible describes two people. I said in Adam or in Christ. The other way that we can think of it is children of God or children of the devil. John 8. What does Jesus say to the Pharisees who he's arguing with? You are of your father, the murderer, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. There are two classes of people. There are children of wrath, Ephesians 2, or children of light who are called by God. Okay? What total depravity does, which he's going to cover here in point one, if you'll flip over one page to page 47, one flip anyway, two pages, one flip. Page 47. How does he define the way that we should define our identity, okay? He mentioned all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says this. He, he illustrates three unifying truths into the communities where historic grievances could have easily torn the body of Christ limb for limb. First, Paul told the truth that sin is not exclusively the oppressor's problem, but a human problem, okay? Total depravity. There is none righteous. No, not one. Romans chapter 3, right? None righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Not a single person has an inclination to pursue God in any way without the Holy Spirit's help. John chapter 6, I think it's verse 44 if I'm not mistaken. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. The only thing that creates a level playing field for all humanity is our standing before God. Our standing before God as condemned and under His wrath and our standing before Christ as united to Him, back in union with Him through the blood of Jesus that He purchased on our behalf. We have to have the covenant of works fulfilled for us or we are condemned by it. It cannot become good for us unless Christ purchased it for us. Okay? That's the first principle. The second principle... Flip the page to page 48. Second, he says, about middle of the first paragraph, Paul told the truth that being in Christ Jesus is a new identity that transcends other group identities. That transcends other group identities. In other words, it precedes everything you hold dear. It precedes your social status. It precedes your economic status. It precedes your psychological difficulties. It precedes your skin color. It precedes how you grew up, who was mean to you, who was nice to you. And every single thing that is important about you is preceded by your identity in Christ because he is the one who informs us how to live in a godly and holy way with all of those things. That identity is primary, okay? It cannot, it cannot 
live with other identities vying for its position. You will quench the spirit in your life and you will be in sin and God's hand will be upon you to discipline you to bring him back into fellowship with him in that way. This is why, this is why we cannot, okay, we cannot tolerate men and women and leaders of any kind who claim the name of Christ and claim that critical theory can coincide with the Christian belief. It can't do it. It's like worshiping Baal and Yahweh at the same time. You cannot do it. They cannot be married. They have fundamentally different presuppositions. So that every man who promotes critical theory from a university, from a prominent evangelical institution, or who doesn't correct it in his institution. These are some of the men I mentioned last week. You can go and listen to that again. Just look at their Twitter accounts, look at the videos they've promoted, look at the people they have hired. They allow or promote, depending on who you are talking about, these things to come into contact and be married to Christianity. It cannot happen. It's blasphemy against God. By grace alone. By grace alone. Well, I mean, if we separate ourselves from all of that, if we separate ourselves from everything that's ungodly, we're going to live in a colony of Christians. I'm unsure what you mean by that. Because... That's the way you're saying. That's the way it comes across to me. Okay, let's, let's flip over to Ephesians chapter 4 then. Just so I can clarify what I'm trying to say. So the question is, is how can we not just become a colony of Christians. How can we not just become a colony of Christians if that's what, what I'm saying? All right, let me find where I'm looking for here because we're just doing this on the fly. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened. This is verse 17. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to, walk all, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitfulness of lusts, and be renewed in, your, in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man in Christ. It says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are all members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Let the, uh, do, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Nor give place to the devil. Let him who, st uh, who stole steal no longer, but let him labor, working with his hands for what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness, wrath, and malice be far from you, and forgive one another. And then Ephesians 5, which is actually where I, the, the verse I was looking for, says, verse 8, 
for, once you, for you were once in darkness. That gives us some context about what God has called us to in working in a worthy man, walking in a worthy manner, which I had later down in the thing. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship. That's what I was looking for. I'm sorry that it took me a minute to get there. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things are exposed to the light and are made to be manifest by the light. Further, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul is talking about uh, the discipline of members in the church who refuse to repent, which these men, some of these men, have publicly made statements that they've refused to repent of. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 5 say in regards to the discipline of those in the church? It says, if we go on, I wrote to you, this is verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, that is to separate from them, yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covenants or with extortioners, or with idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But listen, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetousness, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. When we pay taxes, do we support some of this ungodly stuff? Sure we do. But that doesn't mean... I'll be happy to talk to you about that afterward, but that's not in particular importance to this particular subject. Okay? Um, that, I think I tried to answer your initial question there, is how do we have fellowship with, and I don't want this to turn into a back and forth with us, so, but, but God calls us without equivocation to separate ourselves from people who refuse to repent. And that is what I'm saying. And I'm not going to, relent on the people that I named those last week. I do think that we can call them to repentance, and I am sorry that it's come to this sort of situation, but I, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. Those men are leading people astray, and those men are called to repent. Okay? Those men are called to repent. So let's move on here. Cone's paragraph, and this is actually an illustration of of why I say that about these men. Okay, why I say that about these men. Page 49. Some of them, yes. Not just have embraced it, but have promoted it wholesale to the point... Correct. The men that I named last week. Yes. I, was, I got a little confused with yeah. those men. So that's where we are in the discussion right at this minute. Correct. Okay, thank Correct. You. And so if you go on, what, how do they use the term? This is what I would just ask you if you want to go on to their Twitter accounts, read their books, blog posts that they've made. How do they use the term white or whiteness? Oh, okay, and let's see, let's see if they, they talk about it in the same way or in a similar vein to James Cone. And I realize this is a hard issue for people. And I realize that I am being very straightforward about this, okay? This is a gospel issue. This is a, a Baal versus Yahweh issue. This is not a small thing. 
This is literally dividing our country, and it's dividing churches and denominations all over our country. And we cannot any longer act as though it's not that important. We can't. That's why we're doing this study. All right, page 49. When whites undergo the true experience of conversion, wherein they die to whiteness. This is James Cone. He's the father, he's considered the father of black liberation theology. He was a professor at Union Theological Seminary, a very liberal, at one time, Presbyterian theological seminary in New York. When whites undergo the true experience of conversion, wherein they die to whiteness and are reborn anew in order to struggle against white oppression and for the liberation of the oppressed, there is a place for them in the black struggle of freedom. So what do, Christ, what do white people have to die to? Do they have to die to their sin? No, they have to die to their cultural hegemony, their white privilege. This is another religion. This is why I'm so serious about this. Okay, it's another religion. It says, against white oppression for the liberation of the oppressed. Notice the language, the Marxist language. There is a place for them in the black struggle for freedom. Not in the struggle of freedom for sin. Here, listen, reconciliation becomes God's gift of blackness. Not Christ's blood. Okay, not Christ's blood, but God's gift of blackness. It's cultural appropriation that saves you. These leaders that I named use these terms. Specifically three of them. The con- it's a, they say this, but it must be made absolutely clear that it is the black community that decides both the authenticity of white conversion and also the part these converts will play in the black struggle for freedom. Who grants the guilty or not guilty verdict? Is it God? Is there any standard of righteousness by which we can declare someone guilty or not guilty? No. Who grants it? The oppressed. This is what it means when people talk about standpoint. From my point of view, from my eyes, the lenses that I wear, epistemology, how I know things. I know that you're worthy based on your agreement with my position. Not because Christ has set you free from sin, but because I saw it fit to give you license to be forgiven according to my Marxist ideology. It is another religion. It is another religion. These, the converts have nothing to say about the validity of their conversion experience or what is best for the community or their place in it, except as permitted by the oppressed community itself. No ability to speak. No ability to hold anything accountable. No ability to say right from wrong if you're not part of that group. Fundamentally different presuppositions. Okay? This is serious. This is serious. It's literally destroying our culture. White converts, if there are any to be found, must be made to realize that they are like babies who have barely learned to walk and talk. They must be told when to speak and what to say. Otherwise, they will be excluded from our struggle. When I mentioned that I did not enjoy the word empathy anymore, 
This is what I was talking about. Empathy today means that I must leave behind any truthful perspective that I could glean from this text. Okay, I must leave that behind and agree with and affirm your oppression, even if it's based on your sinful actions. There are reasons that I've made those statements. Okay, They're not out of nowhere. They must be told when to speak, what to say. Otherwise, they will be excluded from our struggle. Have you ever heard the term, be quiet and lament? Have you heard that perpetrated by uh, so-called brothers and sisters in Christ? If you've spent any time in the social justice sphere, you will. Okay, you will. We're just to come alongside. And we do that in a Christian way, but we don't do it to affirm sinfulness. Unlike white, unless whites can get every single black person to agree that reconciliation is realized, this is an unattainable goal because there's no standard. There is no place whatsoever for white rhetoric about the reconciling love of blacks and whites. Do you hear that? Christ can't accomplish it. Blacks have to agree to it. And I don't mean that as a pejorative to the term to actual black people. This is what he's saying. Okay? This is what he's saying. So this is what this stuff is based on. Just because we work with them and sometimes worship alongside of them should be no reason to claim that they are truly Christians and thus part of our struggle. So who's being schismatic? Who is causing division? Is it people who are willing to say this is the biblical principle? This is the true God? Or is it people who want to affirm these things? It's people who want to affirm these things. They are worshiping a false God. They are idolaters. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we should have nothing to do with them, not even to eat with them, except to call them to repentance. Okay? That is the line that you all must draw in your hearts if you are to live in the face, especially you young people, if you are to live in the face of the culture that we have now foisted upon you by our faithlessness over the generations, including myself. Every single one of us in this room is culpable in some way to perpetuating these sorts of things. We've accepted the status quo. We just want to live in peace without representation in the world. Every single one of us, me included, okay? We must repent and turn to Christ. And we must worship Him according to His Word and His law. And we must forsake any hint of this. Any hint of this. And with that, we're out of time. We must be found in Him, which is, I was going to read that on page 50, but I basically have said, be found in him. I basically have said those things in the last couple minutes. So, yes, sir. I think that's clear from that passage that I read. Yeah, absolutely. So the question was, not to cut you off, but I think I know what you were going to ask about the world itself versus the church. 
So in the passage that I read in 1 Corinthians 5, if you go back and read, which I I did read, starting in verse 9, and look at the first part of that before we get to the part where he says uh, what to do with brothers, he says that not to go out of the world or have nothing to do with idolaters, covetous people who are in the world. So he makes a distinction there about how we should approach those men and women. And we have to approach them in the way that Jesus wants us to approach them, and that is with the gospel. That is with the law, calling them to repentance and showing them their sin, and that is with the promise of grace if they repent and believe. Thank you for the clarification. Yep. Yeah, Lord willing, we'll try to do that. So Lord willing, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, and I, I may have gotten there today, but we, we had some uh, good questions that we needed to cover and stuff. So I um, had to put some of the end of the lesson on, on hold. So read that, read the book. I think it, it's helpful in some of those ways. Um, I can point you, point you to some other, other resources on this, if you wish. Like there are several books that I've read that are very good on these issues. Um, yeah, that would be helpful in this discussion, okay? All right, let me pray for us so so that we can start the service here. My apologies for running over a few minutes. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to um, come together today. Thank you for just being good to us, for loving us uh, the way that you do, um, for calling us to live a holy life. God, for calling us to hate sin and for calling us to pull brothers along towards you with us. Uh, God, I pray that uh, for myself, Lord, that I would do a better job of that and for all of us here. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.